This reading is taken from the book of John, chapter 18, which can be found on the Church Bibles on page 1086. Chapter 18, starting from verse 1. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said, and Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he has spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Thank you, Emily. Do, uh, do keep that open uh, as we look at it together. We're, we're big on control, aren't we? We're big on control. Whether it is being in control of our career paths, being in control of our holiday plans, being in control of our family plans, being in control of our health, being in control of our time. In fact, we like being in control so much, TV now revolves around that. Things like Netflix and Amazon Prime, growing and growing in popularity so we can watch what we want to watch, when we want to watch it, and now even where we want to watch it. We're big on control. And we're going to start this evening by listening to a poem. Now, before you think, oh, Scott, you're there in chinos and talking about poetry, you've gone so cultured. I can assure you I haven't. I heard it on a film, uh, which is why you're about to hear the tones of Morgan Freeman uh, reading this poem to us. So, we're just going to, lead to the, listen to this poem called uh, Invictus. Out of the night that covers me, black as the bed from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of fate, I hid as bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years binds 
and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishment the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. They're striking words, aren't they? Striking words. Uh, and, and I think, even though they were written back uh, in the late 1800s, they do go some way to still sum up our culture today. I'm in control of my destiny. I'm the master of my life. I'm in control. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. But it's nonsense, really, isn't it? Uh, And if you don't think it's nonsense, uh, then you're going to be unsettled by what we're going to hear and see this evening. Because we've come to Jesus' arrest in the Gospel of John. Jesus has just uh, finished praying. He's prayed for himself to be glorified. He's prayed for his disciples. And he's prayed for all believers. Uh, And now... Him and his disciples, they've made their way across Jerusalem to a garden. A garden, we read that him and his disciples had used often. A garden on the Mount of Olives. A garden the other Gospels would call Gethsemane. But you may have noticed that that name isn't mentioned in John's account here. In fact, there are a few details in John's account that he doesn't include compared to the other Gospels. He doesn't include Jesus praying and his disciples falling asleep. He doesn't include the betraying kiss of Judas. And that isn't because John doesn't think these things happened. He was there. But rather he's looking to highlight something different for us. He's looking to draw our attention to something different. And that is control. Who has it? Judas? The soldiers? In being arrested, it might seem as if Jesus isn't in control. But John shows us the complete opposite. Could not be more true. So, come with me into it. There's some headings on the card that you've been given to help us as we make our way through. The first, the world thinks it has control. But Jesus does. Let me read verses 2 and 3 again for you. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. It seems when you read that that this is a situation the authorities are in control of. Jesus and his disciples, they've sought a quiet place away from the busyness of Jerusalem during the Passover festival. Judas has the inside knowledge where they're going to be, so he's able to guide this detachment of soldiers there. Leading a big crowd, not just of Jewish officials, but of Roman soldiers. The world opposed to Jesus had come for him. And why do we say world? Well, John's been drawing us to that idea throughout his gospel. Who is it that comes for Jesus? The Jews on their own? No. We have here 
a detachment of Roman soldiers. Only John mentions that. It wasn't just Jews who opposed Jesus, who arrested him and took him to the cross. It was Romans as well. Gentiles. The world had come for Jesus. So here they are. This significant number of soldiers and Jewish authorities come to arrest Jesus with torches, with lanterns, and with weapons. Potentially hundreds. Detachment is a bit vague, but it could be hundreds coming for him. So you have this massive crowd come to this garden. And who do they meet? Jesus and 11 others. This massive crowd meet Jesus and 11 others. What a mismatch. It would be a bit like if Christchurch gathered together a football team and played Manchester City, Premier League champions. I very much doubt we would even touch the ball, never mind put some passes together or score a goal. It would be embarrassing how much control Manchester City would have. And in the garden, we have a similar mismatch. And it must have surely seen that control lay in the hands of the authorities that had come. It would surely have been hard for the disciples not to look at that massive crowd and think, this is it. It looks like the opposing world to Jesus is in control of him, in control of his fate, and in control of the fate of his disciples. And if you're like me, uh, sometimes it can feel that way still with this world, can't it? It can feel like the world opposed to Jesus is in control. Maybe we feel it when we hear or read about the persecution of Christians. The persecution that seems to just be intensifying. Persecution that led to a recent BBC article that was titled, Iraq's Christians Close to Extinction. Maybe that's where we feel it. Or maybe we feel it more personally. Maybe we've experienced it. Rejection by friends. Bullying at school or at work. Feeling that you don't want to tell a colleague what you get up to on a Sunday. Feeling that you can't give your biblical view on a topic that's been chatted about down the pub or in a class because... You fear that if you do, you'll be called judgmental. You'll be called narrow-minded. You'll be called bigoted. Because of your Christian beliefs. You can feel that way. It might seem that the world opposed to Jesus is in control. But come back to our passage. And we see a glorious truth that gives us such hope and such reassurance in the face of those feelings. Come with me to verse 4. And we see that Jesus is in full control of his arrest. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth. They said, now I've never been arrested, you'd be pleased to know, uh, but I have watched enough programs like Police Interceptors uh, to get the idea that generally the person being arrested doesn't have control. 
handcuffs behind their back into the back of the police van buff off you go sounds so simple but what does John say here Jesus knew all that was about to happen Jesus knew all that was about to happen he knew it and you know what that means don't you Jesus was there to offer his life. It wasn't being taken from him. Jesus was there to offer it in full obedience to his Father, in full knowledge of what was to come. Jesus had chosen to go to the garden precisely because that's where he could count on Judas finding him. Jesus doesn't wait for the crowds to come into the garden. He goes out to meet them. And then we have this crazy verbal exchange. Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth. I am he, Jesus said. Now the more literal translation of that I am he is I am. The very expression God uses to identify himself. It's a bit ambiguous. It could be that Jesus is just going, yep, that's me. Probably in less of a joyful term. Or it could be that Jesus is once again hammering home his divinity using the same language that God uses to express himself in the likes of Isaiah. Either way, the impact of Jesus' words is astonishing. The crowd draw back and fall to the ground. Jesus says, I am... And those soldiers, well-trained, well-drilled, and those Jewish authorities fall to the ground. In no way are they in control of that situation. In no way are they in control. Jesus is. Jesus is in complete control. And almost driving this home, Jesus asks the same question again. It's almost like he's giving them a helping hand, pulling them back up, letting them compose themselves after being bowled over. On the surface, when the authorities arrived, when the world opposed to Jesus came for him, it would seem they had control. No way. No way. Jesus is in full control. And in fact, We've seen this all the way through John. Jesus' control over nature, his control over disease and illness, his control over crowds, his control over demons, his control over death. Jesus always had control. And it is no different here as he is arrested. Don't get me wrong, Judas, the Jews and Romans, they'd made decisions to bring them to that point. They had chosen and resolved to treat Jesus terribly, to arrest and ultimately kill him. And yet, and yet, as Jesus makes his way to the cross, nothing is out of his control. What does that mean for us? Well, despite a changing world, Jesus doesn't change. He is in control. Does that make any of what we said earlier about persecution easier? No, it doesn't. 
Jesus doesn't promise to take those things away. We heard back in chapter 15, he's promised the world is going to hate his disciples. But what it does mean is that we can trust completely Jesus is in control. That the purposes of God Jesus came to reveal are being worked out. John 16, 33, uh, Jesus says this, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. We need to keep trusting and relying on that for strength and reassurance as we face this world. So the world seemed to be in control, but Jesus was. And our second point, even as Christians, we want control. But it is better for us that Jesus has it. Come back to our passage in it, and it kicks off a little bit. Uh, we'll pick it up at verse 8. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? I do sometimes feel for Peter. John's the only person to name him uh, in this little uh, exchange. Uh, And it maybe doesn't surprise us. He's made a pretty bold claim a bit earlier that he would lay down his life uh, for Jesus. But you you do struggle to get your head around what, what Peter was thinking as he did this. I mean, he's just seen Jesus knock over this massive crowd by saying, I am. And yet he tries to take things and matters into his own hand. He pulls out a sword and cuts a man's ear off. Brave move, maybe, as he tries to help Jesus. But what was he going to achieve? A very clever man called Carson says it was, a blow as clumsy as Peter's courage was great. The tactic was as pointless as Peter's misunderstanding was total. I don't know if you're ever making a cake when you were younger, like proper younger, really small, uh, with your mum and dad. Uh, When you made it, you want to have control. You want to pour in the ingredients. You want to mix it all up. Uh, And so... Uh, the adding of ingredients lacks a fair bit of precision as you crack in the eggs or throw in the entire egg, as it may be. When you mix, more ends up on the floor uh, than it does in the bowl. Uh, And there's normally an addition of a substantial amount of dribble uh, as you get a little bit excited uh, by the smell. Maybe that's just me. Uh, Technique is as clumsy as enthusiasm is great as a child makes a cake. And the result is, more often than not, a pretty useless cake. Ultimately, Peter's attempt to take control of the situation was useless. But more than that, it was a denial of the work Jesus had come to do. And that's what Jesus' words allude to in verse 11 when Jesus once again displays his control of the situation. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Jesus had come precisely to do what he was doing and what he was going to do. Die on the cross 
for the sins of the world. Drinking the cup, suffering the wrath of God to save those who believe in him. This is what Jesus had come to do. It's what only Jesus could do. This atoning sacrifice was what God the Father had sent him for. And he was going to be completely obedient to that. So his comment to Peter reflects the prayer in the, other, in the garden, the other gospels mentioned, where Jesus says, not my will, but yours be done. Nothing, no one, not even his own disciple, was going to stop Jesus doing what he had come to do. Jesus is in full control as he moves towards this final sacrifice on the cross. And what is awesome here is that his very arrest actually gives us a picture of that. Did you see it in verse 8 and 9? Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. In order to save his disciples, Jesus had to be arrested. Jesus giving himself up to arrest that night saved the lives of the 11 there with him. That's a picture of the gospel, isn't it? Jesus giving himself up, giving himself up to death on a cross, offering his life as a sacrifice to save those who believe in him. But I do wonder, even as Christians, if we try and wrestle back control sometimes from God. From Jesus. I mean, I like being in control. I feel more at ease when I'm in control. I feel more at ease when I'm in control, for example, driving. I'm much more at ease when I drive compared to Louise, my wife, which she'll not thank me for. Uh, and that's what the Invictus poem is driving at, isn't it? I am the master. I am the captain. We like control, but the danger of desiring control can mean that our faith becomes more about what I can do for Jesus than what he has done for me. Our faith can become a tick box exercise. Read my Bible in the morning, tick. Prayed, tick. Got along to my CU or my small group, tick. Served coffee on a Sunday, tick. They're all good things. They're all good things. But the danger is the heart behind them is one that thinks I'm doing Jesus a favor by doing them. Or the heart behind them is I deserve something. I earn something by doing them. The reminder this evening is that our salvation is not about what we do. It is about what Jesus has done. So can you see it is far better for us that Jesus has control because only Jesus, only Jesus can secure our salvation. So we can say, Jesus is the master of my fate. Jesus is the captain of my soul. Our starting point has to be having a heart that trusts in the control of Jesus. A heart that trusts in him 
and a heart that will therefore seek to obey him because of that. We read the Bible, we pray, we go to small groups and CUs, we serve on a Sunday, not to do Jesus a favor, not because we can earn anything. We do it because we remember the awesomeness of what Jesus has done for us. Because we want to know and trust him more and because we want to obey him. So as we finish, the question I want to pose to you this week is do we think the world has control? Do we see ourselves as masters of our fate and captains of our souls? Or will we look to have a heart that trusts and obeys the one who does have control? Jesus. Will we say and live in a way that sees Jesus as the master of our fates and Jesus as the captain of our soul? Let me pray. Father, thank you uh, for John writing this account. Thank you that you sent your son who had full control even when being arrested. Thank you that he still is in control. Pray that as we go about our week, we would know and live in the light of that more and more, trusting in your control and being obedient to it. Amen.